Thank you very much uh, for being with us at this uh, platform performance to talk about the new Cottesloe production of Detroit, which opened last night. Uh, I'm Matt Wolf, London theater critic of the International Herald Tribune. I'm delighted to introduce the playwright of Detroit, Lisa Damour, and the director of it, Austin Pendleton. So. Mm -hmm. Thank you both for being with us. Uh, let's just start by this very American play, which of course has an American title, Detroit, mm -hmm. being here at the National Theatre of Great Britain in the Cottesloe with the British cast. What's your thought, Lisa, about it being here to begin with and with this cast? <laughs> um, well, it's, it's amazing to be here. I, I was um, having lunch with a, a former colleague of mine just last week here who had, was talking about seeing the original productions of Angels in America <laughs> in this theater. And, when I was reminded of that, I just was completely blown away. Um, and you know, Austin and I had the chance to work on this play at Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. Um, and it's a really rare treat for a playwright to be able to have a production of her play, which you learn so much from, and then come and have a second production uh, where you're able to continue the conversation with the director. Um, and then to have these British actors um, uh, actually, uh, two British actors, two Irish actors, and one Scottish actor, uh, all um, bringing their experience into the play. Um, it was just a totally new conversation. And in an interesting way, I feel like there was something about the cast and the slight distance that they had from the material that brought about the dream life of the play in a different way. There was a little bit more of a surreal edge to the experience, just a little than there was um, with the Steppenwolf production, which, as you know, Steppenwolf is known for a kind of meat and potatoes style of acting. Um, uh, so it was, it was just really amazing for me to have these two um, really stellar productions and interpretations of the play. So. Austin, what was your feeling about that, revisiting it with a British company? Well, I got this call from Nick Heitner. I'd heard rumors that the National was interested and in, that they were going to ask me, which utterly astonished me. It honestly did. I, it didn't even occur to me. And then I get this call from Nick Heitner on my voicemail. Very kind call. And I answered it immediately. <laughs> I did. And uh, we had a brief talk, a 10-minute talk. And he said, um, I called him from New York you know, to hear. And he said, um, would you mind terribly using some of our actors over here? And I said, oh, yeah, sure, you know. And he said, we think some of them are rather good, really, some of our actors. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, that's not what I've heard, Nick, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but I'll go along with this, you know. And indeed, they were, have been heaven. First of all, the casting director here, Alistair, we came over twice. We came over early December, me, me and Lisa and the designer. And I came, and we offered the parts to people who, who, who Alistair brought in. And then almost all of them had to decline, because they were very much in demand. And so I came back again alone, because Lisa w wasn't able to, in f February. I, I flew over on Valentine's Day, I remember that. and. Um, uh, and said, I saw a whole bunch of other actors. It was like, I could have picked almost anyone I saw. 
But it was interesting. I don't know how to put Yeah. When you don't know any actor you've seen you, that you're auditioning, not one, you, you see them on, on, on their credits that they've done extraordinary things. I mean, the parts they played and the theaters they played them in and the directors they've worked with, you see they're clearly unbelievably experienced, accomplished actors. But you don't know any of them. You've never heard anything about any of them. I've, I've, I don't think I've ever had that experience as a director before in casting. And you get, so you ha go, and, and they all read, and they all read beautifully. They all audition beautifully. So you just, you go entirely by instinct. You say, I think maybe these four would be good. Something like that. So at the end of the, of the, of the week, of the, other, of, of, of the last trip over, um, Alistair said, and I had to leave in a little while for the plane. He said, okay, who do you want? And I said, I took a deep breath and out came these names. Mm. I've never cast a show like that before. And it was instinct. And I wasn't even troubled by it. Mm. <laughs> I, I didn't, I thought, I know these people are going to be great. I just know it. And they were, virtually from day mm. one. You mentioned, Austin, the yeah. sort of meat and potatoes, wonderful image, kind of acting for which Steppenwolf is known. And of course, a lot of Steppenwolf productions yeah. have been over here in their original productions, Augusta Sage County, uh, I guess most recently. Is there, uh, or was there, any concern about how a British, Irish, Scottish company might uh, attack those demands within the play? It's pretty visceral. Some of it is quite aggressive. There's a party scene, for those of you who haven't seen it, which is pretty wild and raucous and crazy. Don't say anything more about okay. the party scene. <laughs> so did you, did you think, gosh, how are they going to surrender to that? Well, first of all, from the auditions of these people, although I think it would have been true of just about anybody we auditioned, I didn't get a, a trace of that feeling in any of the auditions, that there would be any problem with that. Somehow... See, when I audition actors, I read opposite them. First of all, you go mad sitting as an audience watching the same scenes over and over again. But also, when you audition with them, you can tell a lot how an actor works. Hmm. You throw them little curveballs, little curveballs. And they, do they pick up on it, or do they just proceed with a prearranged plan they have? And this play, I call this play all the time jazz, which it is. It's a lot of other things, too, but it's jazz. And, and it, um, so you want actors who, but, and these actors were particularly good at that, but they also just had individual qualities in them that, and I don't, I'll just say the sentence, I have no way of explaining what I mean. That's, you want actors when you cast who are not only right for the part, but right for the play, right for the writing, right for the sensibility of the writing, and, Intuitively, the, the, uh, all these four, these uh, five people seem to be that. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't worried, and we started rehearsal six weeks later, and I still wasn't worried. We got weeks in, I still wasn't worried. I kept <laughs> waiting to get worried, <laughs> but it didn't happen. When did you then re-enter the equation, Lisa? Because you said you weren't at the, all the auditions. I was not. Yeah, I, what I was able to do is I came to the first four rehearsals at the beginning of the process. So I, and um, during those rehearsals, I answered a lot of questions about the play. 
Um, we read through it several times. Um, uh, and also, uh, I did a bunch of reordering uh, of the very last scene of the play. So it was a kind of fast and furious workshopping. And it was this great day where we were in a rehearsal room, and I didn't really have access immediately to a printer. So we had the scene, and I was like ripping it into different strips of paper and rearranging it. And the assistants were helping me tape it back together. Scotch tape. Yes. <laughs> it was very old school. Yeah. Uh, and so we arrived at the new version of the last scene. And yeah. then I like ran off, because I had other work to do in the States. And then Austin, we, we were in touch for the mm -hmm. next three or four weeks, mm -hmm. but it was you know, mostly about how well things were going. And then he told me that the show was running a little longer than it did at Steppenwolf, which put the fear of God in me, because a playwright <laughs> never wants to hear that things are going slow. And he kept saying, but I don't know what, I don't know why, I don't see where it should go faster. And then I came back for the first run through and it was running longer and I was like, I don't know how it can go faster. It just is like it found its new organic yeah. form. And it here, was like, at I first think. it was like yeah. 25 minutes faster. Yeah, it's and not that you, bad at You couldn't wow. track it yeah. where the difference was. Finally, it got down to it's maybe eight minutes faster yeah. now than it was. Or sl slower, I guess. Let's yeah. talk a little I mean, bit I mean about fast, um, slower. Uh, slower yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the title, which mm -hmm. is a very specifically American title, uh, not presumably in reaction to Chicago on the West End, but it's interesting, Chicago, Detroit. Mm -hmm. Although I would argue that you could watch the play and not know it's called Detroit and still get a lot out of it, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. it could translate. And the play could be set in, in a number of different cities in the Midwest. Um, there's actually going to be a production of Detroit in Detroit <laughs> sometime next spring. Oh, yes, wow. it's the one. And uh, I'm We're actually going to be very disappointed because <laughs> Detroit is not once referred right. to. Right, it's, it's not. Mentioned not in the play. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. Uh, well, they are. They read the play before they decided to do it. Yeah. But yeah. I. But I am going to talk yeah. to them to see if they. It might be the one place where I might change a few of the references. Possibly, I'm going to talk to them to yeah. allow it to be set in Detroit, like a special. Yeah. gift just for them. We'll see. Yeah, right. Was it always um, your title though? It was always the title. And I always knew that it didn't have to be Detroit. And I think it's just, you know, that just like evoking that name, it just has this kind of mythic resonance in our country. Totally. Um, first and foremost about urban decline. Um, also about job loss because of the collapse of the auto industry in the States. But then also, if you really look at it, um, there's a lot of activism in Detroit right now and a lot of progressive thought about mm -hmm. what it means to mm -hmm. invent a city that has in many ways fallen apart, um, and especially among artists. So, so there's something bubbling there now uh, that is, I hope, very interesting. So I, I think all of those things come to mind when you hear that title, and I, I think it's you know, hovering on the edges of the, of the action of the play. But you didn't feel, Austin, as if you needed to take your cast on a weekend to Detroit to get them No, up to I would speed. never say that to any cast <laughs> of any play. Uh, no, it, it's, uh, uh, n n I didn't feel a need to take them outside the rehearsal room. It, it, they were so, well, the play, wherever it's said, it's said, just as Lisa suggested, in the Midwest, in the suburban, first suburban ring in a city in the Midwest. And I grew up in the mid I grew up in Ohio. And they had expert training here in, within the national, these actors, on the accents. And, but I, you could tell in rehearsal that they'd had those down even before the rehearsal start. They'd been working with her, and they'd 
kind of mastered it. But they also have developed from that a wonderful intuitive sense of, I can't think of another phrase for it, the inner life of Midwesterners. So I didn't have to, I would tell them anecdotes anyway because I can't, I can't, st I can't stop myself, but, but, but they didn't need to hear them, you know. They just had this intuitive sense behaviorally and emotionally of Midwestern Americans. Although one of the very interesting things, and by the way, just a quick show of hands, how many of you have seen the play? Okay, a good number. So I won't give too much away, but this isn't that much of a revelation. One of the characters, Ben, dreams of being Yeah, don't, don't say anything more. Well, yeah. it's, I think, an important question yeah. because yeah. Yeah. here's a very unusual American play with a character who thinks of himself or a version of himself as English being done in England. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So did you then, Lisa, doing it in England, want to point that up? Did you tweak it, rewrite it, enhance it? Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I made some changes um, to that part of the play bef before I knew it was coming to the National. Um, but it was less because of, um, it, was, it was more because it's a very interesting moment for a character to kind of reveal a secret self. Uh, and the moment that I had put that revelation, there was just a lot else going on. So I think I moved it for dramaturgical reasons, but it does allow that moment to fully live here on this stage. Uh, which is really nice, and it's definitely, um, there's, when that moment arrives in the play, I would say there's more, there's a bigger sense of amazement. I mean, it's funny, but there's this, like the, the room feels like it opens up a little bit for the audience in a different way than the way it played in the States. But so. it was placed differently just in the structure of the play yes. in America, so it's, you, it's you'll have better to see all if around. it's different in, in New York. In, in New York yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting moment, though, because in a lot of American plays here, like August Osage County, there is that aspect of the British audience burrowing inside the Americanness of the play. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting here to have an American character who wants to be something that else. other. Yes. So that must have been, it must have tickled you when you knew it was going to be done yeah. here for that reason. Yes, definitely. The um, aspect of it physically, I mean, you can see we've got a Trevor staging here. Is that what you had in Chicago? And if not, does that make a difference? Yeah, I, I think it's really incredible for the play. Um, in Chicago, it was a proscenium stage. Uh, first of all, this is a smaller room in general, which I think is great for, there's a lot of really raw and vulnerable moments in this play. And I think the audience, especially in this configuration, feels a little bit like um, a voyeur. Uh, and uh, I, I've often described to Austin this kind of, I don't know where this image comes from, that I feel like that there are these four characters in this play and that like just above their houses are these giant hawks that are waiting to pounce on them. Right. And they're behaving in the way that like, I hope the hawks don't come swoop down and get me. And somehow this configuration like lends itself to that feeling of like the world looking in on them. Uh, they so feel very I, I really, unprotected here. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. But it didn't have anything to do, Austin, with matching up with Moon on a Rainbow Shawl. No. Which no. is also on here in the same configuration. They're very clear when, when you're going to work in the Cottleslow here. They say, what configuration do you want? Because they can make the, what? Well, I'm sure you all know this. They can make the chairs be anywhere that seats the audience. And in fact, the first thing that we all saw, uh, Lisa and me and the, 
and, and the designer almost the first, first full evening we were here in December was uh, collaborators. And if any of you have seen that, you know that the space was used in a very unusual way. And we could have had that if we wanted. It wouldn't have really fit the play. But we, we, they say they make a real point. Or it could be proscenium. Mm -hmm. They say, you pick what you want, which is wonderful. It's typical of what it's like to work in this theater, yes. I tell you. And it's got an interesting mm -hmm. physical dimension to it, this play, because again, without giving too much away, let's just say that things aren't necessarily fixed. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Or as Yates would say, the center cannot hold. Indeed, Did you, yes. Um, yes. Is, does that make it a technical nightmare because things just have to happen at a certain way in a certain time, and if they don't, then you don't have your play? We definitely have some backup plans. The <laughs> actors created some backup plans as to what happens if one of these little I mean, it's not, uh, you know, it's not like a helicopter lands on stage or anything, but it's support Pratt Falls. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they have some backup plans, but there, there weren't any. I think there was one night when there was a bit of a mishap in Chicago, but mostly, mm -hmm. mostly it's worked out. So. Because I, I got a real sense. I was here on Monday, not last night. I got a real sense of the world of the play imploding physically and emotionally mm -hmm. as well, and. You know, there's a, a sense of economic dispossession, but also spiritual dislocation, all of that. And one wonders, is, is there a sort of political aspect to this play? It seems to me that you're dealing with some pretty, you mm -hmm. know, integral issues about America right now in this election year. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, and I wrote it a few years ago. Um, you know, I mean, I think that this play really begins with a couple that's very stuck. You know, they're, they're at a stuck place in their marriage. Um, at a time when America, especially when I wrote it, was in a very stuck place. Uh, and, you know, you can take that moment in your life to become more stuck, or you can take that moment to reimagine yourself. Uh, and so I, in some ways, I think people in this play are always talking about what they imagine. And so maybe this play is actually about the ability to, Im to imagine or to step back from some kind of machine that you've been caught in and really reimagine yourself. So to me, that's very political. But the imagination in the play isn't always a good thing. Sometimes it takes them places that they don't want to go or, mm -hmm. you know, without giving too much away, it can be dangerous. Mm, it yeah, prevents them from facing reality. Yes. Uh, well, you could, talking, yeah. yeah, you could argue that, yeah. yeah. But there's a lot that in the play that is, maybe it's about going from an from an individual closed off imagination to a collective imagining. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what I'm kind of, maybe that's what kind of happens in that last scene, which does go awry in many ways, but kind of opens up a space for something new to happen. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts on its politicalness of the play? Well, like I said to you earlier, Matt. This is one of those sentences. <laughs> I think any good play is political because any good play um, suggests something about how people relate to the environment they're in. Whether the, the play doesn't have to be realistic. I think, I think Endgame is a wildly political play. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be realistic. It doesn't have to be. But the, um, they're about people caught in a given environment and how they deal with it. And usually the environment in some degree is, in, in any play, almost by definition, is working not entirely with them. 
and sometimes working very much against them, as in this case. And that's political right away. That raises political questions about what do we do for these people? Why does it have to be like this? All of Tennessee Williams, who isn't usually thought of as a political writer, is, I think, political. Certainly Arthur Miller. Pinter, on and on. And Noel Coward. I mean, it's the politics of being a bohemian upper-class person in the 1920s, but that's a world, that's an environment that causes its own frictions, you know. Um, but so, but plays that are devoid of any concern with that, or complacent about that, are essentially unpolitical, I think, and, and uninteresting to me personally. And you deal, interestingly, I think, Lisa, mm -hmm. with two aspects that we don't necessarily see addressed all that much in the American theater, although Tony Kushner is always making a point of both of these. Mm -hmm. One of them is money, mm -hmm. and the other is class. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could say something about that, or those aspects of society that you think it's important to put on stage, and very often they're not. Hmm. Well, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to put two very different couples together on stage, and I knew that that the couple, that like each couple kind of wanted to be the other couple. Uh, and, uh, but that they didn't know how and didn't feel that they could, you know. Um, and, I, and I do feel like there's, um, I grew up in New Orleans, and um, this is a little bit of a tangent, so forgive me. Uh, my mom always talks about when she was growing up in New Orleans, this is before air conditioning, and a very hot city, and you were always forced to be outside on your porch. Mm -hmm. You were outside on your porch, and you were having to kind of like run over to the neighbor's house, and there were literally like your groceries you got from like sellers who came down the street, and there were, you had to interact with people all the time. Now, I'm not saying there weren't class issues in New Orleans when my mom was growing up, and so I'm romanticizing a little bit, but I just had this feeling that, you know, the architecture of especially the American suburbs right now, you just don't really need to interact with people at all. And so you don't have that kind of um, wonderful learning thing that happens when you're around people that are incredibly different from you. So, uh, and, and I know that I've learned a lot from people. I feel like I've been in many situations in my life where I've had to be in the room with people who are very different from me. And I also, as I mentioned to you earlier, you know, sort of watched my family and a lot of New Orleanians recover from Katrina at a time when the, um, when the formal structures, the US government and the state government and even the city government, they just didn't have their act together. They, things weren't happening to help people rebuild. And so it really started on a, the grassroots level with people helping people. So I think that's just something that's very important to me, the conversation that can happen outside of any kind of you know, governmental structure. Um, that can bring about change or bring about community. So, so with um, that in mind, Austin, how did you come to direct it to begin with? At, at I got an email from Martha anyone. Levy in the fall of 2009 saying our, our season a year from now, the fall of 2010, the first show on the main stage is a new play called Detroit by Lisa Demore, and I'd like to ask you to direct it, and would you read it with that in mind? Well, I, I love the title right away. <laughs> It just, for all the reasons that Lisa just, the title just, I somehow knew it wasn't about cars, you know. <laughs> and and, uh, uh, and um, so uh, I just, and, but, but 
that I mean, I mean, any script that Martha wants me to think about, either directing or acting, and I will read within 24 hours. And um, so she sent me this play, and I read it the same day. And I emailed her. I can't remember when I've read anything quite as as strikingly talented as this. I mean, it, it's been a while. And it's thrilling, and, but I'm not sure I'm available. And it took, oh, like six months before I really knew I could clear what I thought was going to happen at the same time in my life in New York professionally. But finally that worked. And I said, you've got to go ahead and get somebody else. She said, no. That's why I'm here <laughs> right now. And she said, uh, can I cast it? I said, I have no ethical right to keep you from casting it. Can I pick the designer? She said, I have no, I, I'm, I, I have no right to keep you from doing that. And so she, she got to this perfect cast. Now there's, and this is so weird, two perfect casts for the play, <laughs> which are completely unlike each other. That's, among other things, a sign of a really good script. But the... Um, and picked exactly terrific designers. We were only allowed to use one, according to Nick, so I picked the designer of the set. And be, because, as you say, we'd had, a, we'd had a dialogue on the set all through the Chicago thing. And so I showed up the first day of rehearsal, and we just started working on it. You know, I'd studied the play and talked to Lisa about it. And there were these actors who I hadn't picked, but all of whom I knew and had worked with before, almost almost all of them. And um, we just, uh, the play, just like you work on any play. Because I remember, Lisa, when it opened in Chicago and Charles Isherwood wrote that rave review in the New York Times and it looked as if it was going to be fast track for Broadway. And, you know, as somebody who goes to a lot of new plays, I remember thinking, gosh, who is this writer? Because right. I hadn't heard of you before. And I think it's, of course, the emergence of a new writer is really thrilling. It's the kind of thing that we, we live for. But what had you been doing prior to this? Well, did, did I, this if I may say, you? Mm -hmm. uh, you hadn't heard of Lisa, and, I, and, and Lisa more or less said to me that she'd never heard of Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> Not Which I loved, I, I loved. I thought, oh, yes. this is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah and I, I, uh, well, I'll just say I've been working my ass off for 15 years yeah. just in smaller yeah. theaters, you know. But were you, what yeah. sorts, were you writing plays? Yes. Like, were you doing device piece? What, what sorts A of, little or is, this, yes. is this very different from what you normally do? You know, yes and no. I mean, I've always, from the moment I started writing, um, I've kind of had this parallel career. I've written plays that are performed in proper theaters, and of course, according to a traditional rehearsal process where a director takes it and rehearses it. Um, most of those theaters that I've been produced in are 100-seat black box theaters in downtown New York. Um, and, uh, and then I have another side to my work, which is very interdisciplinary and devised. I have a, a company called Pearl D'Amore. My collaborator is Katie Pearl, and I'm Lisa D'Amore. And we um, often collaborate with visual artists and mm -hmm. um, choreographers and composers to create pieces that live more in the world of um, kind of like the touring and presenting circuits. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of move back and forth between those two. Um, and I think that on its surface, Detroit, um, I mean, it's, it's a little bit more of a, a, a setup that, we're, that one is familiar with. It almost feels like a TV show in some ways. 
um, but it unfolds in a very unconventional way. Um, I think some of my other plays are a little more focused on experiments with language. Mm -hmm. um, one of the people that's inspired me the most in my work is a playwright named Mac Wellman, mm -hmm. who's um, a poet as much as a playwright. So, um, so this particular play can just live in a little bit of a different kind of theater. Um, but I actually think it's, it's an unconventional experience um, in these bigger theaters. So. Um, so yeah, so I feel like, I, I actually feel very blessed. I've had an amazing career in the theater and I've worked with some really amazing people along the way, including Mr. Pendleton. Um, and so it's just now I'm just in a little bit of a different, a different world. Because Austin, I would think one thing for any director is what it's like to work on a new play where you have no idea how it's gonna land, where it's gonna go, what its trajectory is gonna be, or working on a classic. We were saying before that uh, I, I had seen Austin Pendleton's Broadway production many, many years ago, The Little Foxes with Elizabeth Taylor, and we know who she is, we know what that play is, whereas this but totally talking untested. Talking about not knowing how something was gonna land. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Tell us though about the particular, you know, what, what is the particular landscape of a new play where you are figuring it out for the first time? Well, first of all, you try to do that with a revival, too. Not to think of some self-consciously new way of doing it, but like you try to regard it as new fallen snow, you know, which you automatically do with a new play. Um, you just try to start right at the beginning. And even doing this play here again, it was like starting was at really the beginning. Just just reconfiguring what every beat means, rediscovering it, not ever saying. Now, at this moment, this has to happen. Not ever saying that. Um, every time I've ever said that when I've been directing a play, new or old, it's led to total stagnation and disaster. <laughs> so you just don't say it, and if you, if you don't want to say it, you don't even think it. Mm -hmm. So actually, it isn't all that different, mm -hmm. and but... Um, and you don't want to set it like an old, old Broadway producer said to me once. You're not going to set it. Um, this was a play about Frederick the Great of Prussia. <laughs> he said, I, I was in it. I was Frederick. But he said about the director, I don't want some guy who's going to set it in a Buick. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, 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 no, I don't mean things like that. I just mean, here we are. Now what? And... Um, um, you just try to figure out what the characters are doing. There's a thing they're doing all the time, one way or another. So is there... That's and you a, try to isolate that and then explore it. That's beautifully put. And I wonder, as a result of that, Lisa, is there something you've discovered about your play here that maybe you hadn't realized in Chicago hmm. because of this experience? I might need just a little more distance to fully answer that question, having just gotten through press night. Um, but I do think that um, there's something that I knew was, that I think I knew was there when I wrote it that I had kind of forgotten in Chicago, which is this feeling of am I dreaming or am I awake, which I think goes through the whole play. And I think it's in part because of the small space. You can really feel those moments where both the characters and the audience are just a little unhinged about what is actually happening. And it brings about a different sense of dread in the play. So I actually think the play is a little scarier mm -hmm. in this yeah, incarnation. And I think it's, it's 
it's a little bit of the new cast and a little bit of the space oh. together, but the, but the writing hasn't changed so much. Not so. hardly at all. Yeah. 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 So. One thing for those of you who are seeing it and those of you who have seen it will know, there's a lot of food in the play. Yeah. Is this the best fed cast in England? <laughs> and do, do they actually eat all this food, X number of performances a week, or does it go back, you know, people love knowing. What happens to all the oh, food? Right. Well, most of it is fake, actually. There's yeah. only a few real things. Yeah. So there's a couple of real steaks, but they, all four of them don't really get real steaks. It's very mm. sneaky. Yeah. Mm. So, and one uh, night, the fake steak went to the wrong person. Oh, no. <laughs> and and, and a, a long pause ensued while, for some mysterious reason, all the food was being moved around the table. Yeah. Yes. So, Actually, there is a lot of food. And uh, I, yeah. I come from a family that hosts a lot. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I, I think all of the hosting in the play is very much rooted in my family. One thing, and then we'll open it up to questions in a minute, but when Americans work in the London theater, one thing they often comment on is the relative lack of previews on Broadway yes. or off-Broadway even. You can have shows that preview for three or four weeks, and then you open. Here, you know, you tend to preview for a week, maybe a little bit more, sometimes less. Did you like that aspect of it, that you just kind when of I get going? When I heard it, I was horrified. I thought I saw the end of everything. <laughs> but but the but but as Nick and others pointed out to me, yeah, but you'll have a much longer rehearsal period. And then that that charming English way of putting things, um, so you'll be able to accomplish it all in the rehearsal hall, won't you? <coughs> and, and because there are two two weeks longer of two day techs. That was even short for the national, actually. I couldn't it tech. It was a very short tech. And somehow, even with only two days, we got out early. Yeah. Well, because what they it's do crazy. is they, they have, so the last two weeks of rehearsal for this play, we had a performance every day in the rehearsal room. And the crew came in, and we worked through the scene changes and the costume changes, and the, and the crew got really adept at the scene changes. And also the audience, the actors began to get used to playing it for an audience. So in effect, we had two weeks of previews in the rehearsal hall. And, um, and, but, and by the time we got to the, to the tech rehearsal, see, a whole lot of tech rehearsals are absorbed with working out the scene changes. But we'd already done that. We had it down to a T and the costume changes. So in a way, Nick was right. Well, everybody was right. There's nothing to worry about. I was sure that we were going to. But the, um, and the audience wasn't that much of a thing to throw the actors because they'd had already 12 or 14 audiences in the rehearsal hall. So that's actually a terrific way of doing it. I can't wait to try to impose this on an American production. <laughs> what, you want the crew in rehearsals? Forget it, you know. But they're all here at the National. Because the play, for those who don't know, the play is going to be done in New York off-Broadway, and there the previews will be very long because mm -hmm. that's what happens. Yeah. What, right. What's your feeling yes. about it? You, do you just, it uh, is what it is? I think, I think that's all I can say. I mean, the whole, there'll be a new design in New York. It's a new theater. You know, yeah. I, I do think that, like, you know, each theater has its own way of working in its own culture, and... You know, you can resist some of it, but the, I tend to try and say yes. Oh, like, yeah. Yes. Oh, this so is the way you work? <laughs> yes, I'm going to try and work that, that way. And, you know, be a, a helpful collaborator. Yeah, that's so important. So, mm -hmm. yeah. it's, it's a losing battle, and it just upsets everybody. And it, it's like, in effect, you're saying to the theater that's putting on your play or the play you're directing or whatever, listen, I don't trust the way you all work. Hmm. 
what is the point of that? And certainly, what is the point of that at the National Theater of Great Britain? <laughs> I don't trust you. <laughs> <It's> like, yeah. <laughs> but I, I know people who do that at different theaters, and it, it has never once I worked. I can't imagine that would uh, no, go it's down terrible. Well. I'm sorry to say, I would love to keep this going, but I was told beforehand that the cast are eager to get on stage and start cooking in every way, literally and metaphorically. So I'm afraid we have to bring this to a halt, but let me thank Alston Pendleton and Lisa Moore, and thank all of you for coming. Thank you.